the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. You know, they say that longest-running stuff, and I'm, I'm just inclined to think it's just a polite way of getting around saying he's an old guy. <laughs> well, maybe he is. I don't know. Jury's still out on that one. Hey, good afternoon to you. Welcome welcome on into the Tuesday edition of Lifeline, 26th day of September, in case, in case you're not keeping Keeping track and um, always privileged to spend some time with you on the program, wherever you might be headed on this Tuesday evening, and um, hope we'll keep you informed, entertained, and all that good stuff all along the way. Lots to break down in tonight's program, so we're going to dispense with the formalities and dig right in. Joining me is best-selling author, constitutional lawyer, educator, Mr. Joe Murray. Counselor, as always, a delight and a privilege to have you join us. Outstanding to be here. Thank you so much, Craig. Hey, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. I bet you're excited. Already popping the popcorn for tomorrow night. The second Republican <laughs> debate will unfold before our shell-like ears and eyes uh, tomorrow evening at 9 p.m. Eastern. And I have to ask you the important question before we get to the list of who is and who ain't. And that is, who cares? And and I don't say that, Joe, flippantly, but I remember a time when there was a sense of substance in these debates, when it was not about necessarily personality, but rather about policy and who had the better ideas and to be able to compare and contrast between one or two or three candidates. Now we have a dais, well, certainly not as bad as it was uh, this time four years ago, but, you know, there's an awful lot of people that are up there. I think there are many in this audience that would probably argue that there's at least a handful that have no business on that dais whatsoever. But I just have to wonder, in the grander scheme of things, we see Donald Trump uh, bowing out of the debates for the second time in a row. That Some might say that's because he wants to avoid Chris Christie. I don't know. But I have to wonder if maybe the nature of what the debates have devolved into in recent years just makes them, quite frankly, um, like watching a traffic accident. It's horrifying, but you can't turn your eyes away well i think donald trump played it right and if you look at it he is light years ahead of everyone i mean it would be asking you know the the patriots or the 49ers now because you know your 49ers are up and coming right now they're they're my cardinals are coming for you this week by the way just want to let you know but that being said it would be like asking the 49ers to go play a jv team uh because let's be honest the closest person to him is, is light years away, sometimes up to 30, 40 points away. It makes no sense for him to go there. I mean, what Donald Trump is having done, if we saw what happened today, Joe Biden is out there with the auto workers, you know, striking and walking the picket line. Ironically, he's the reason they're out there with his push for the EVs and all that. But pushing that aside, then Donald Trump is going to be out there uh, tomorrow. We already have our race, right? I know you have Kennedy and and you have that Marianne lady on the one side, and you have a whole bunch of Republicans. 
But whether the nation likes it or not, we got our race. It, it's going to be a Biden and Trump rematch. And, and I can say that with confidence because I don't think there's anything else they can throw at Donald Trump uh, to try to get him off his game. I mean, how many times can you indict the man uh, and, and see his popularity surge? Um, you know, and I laugh at the headlines when I see them. I see that, you know, I think the last headline was from Politico or something, and it was like, uh, you know, Nikki Haley surges the second, and she has 15%, and Trump is at 52%. And, and if it was anybody other than Trump, I think if this was Jeb Bush, and this was back in 2016, won it at 15%, we wouldn't even be having a conversation. And I think the fact that we're trying to have these debates and, and, and trying to make them relevant is going to cause these candidates to go to more and more absurd things just to grab headlines. And I get goes to where you're saying, Craig, it's going to become a major train wreck because you have about six candidates on that stage that are that are on life support, uh, or better yet, the better analogy is they're drowning. Uh, and we all know what happens with a drowning person. They just flail about trying to get any type of attention and, and, and try to get any type of, of leverage. And I think that's what we're going to see with the Republicans. And they can't go after Trump because you're punching somebody that's not there. So they're going to have to go back to going at each other again. Yeah, I mean, it can, kind of sounds silly uh, to be debating Donald Trump when he's not there to respond or, or defend himself. And amongst the, yeah. the, the the rest of the others, yeah, I think you're right. It, it, it kind of comes down to not so much who can put forward the best policy ideas as much as who can be the most outlandish that will be able to get enough attention to make the pollsters think, aha, we think we found, you know, the, mm-hmm. the so-called winner. I mean, uh, I think last Last time around, some people would tell you that uh, Ramaswamy uh, came out ahead, although I think he just came out as trying to do a, a, a poor invitation of Donald Trump and, uh-huh. uh, and and contradicting himself, sadly, at every single turn. Uh, so, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it seems to be more about, as you're suggesting, headline grabbing attention and no real substance and uh, you know I, I maybe that's what the American public wants now I don't know uh, but I would rather if we're going to hear a debate hear a debate that actually gets into real policy issues and not uh, you know personality attacks well and you have to think about this Craig this might be the first time runners never debate because we know Biden isn't going to debate RFK, and we know that unless something dramatically changes, I don't see Trump coming to any of the debates. And now Biden has said a few months ago that he has pretty much is considering not debating Donald Trump. Uh, this could be the end of debates as we know it. Uh, I mean, I do think that we could be going in there. Now, we know that why Biden is not debating Trump. Uh, I don't think Biden has the, the stamina to go this go around. Uh, I mean, I think the man is... You know, and, I, and it's not just because he's of his age. I just think because of his mental stamina. I mean, you can be of a certain age and still be sharp as a tack. He's, that's not him. I mean, he's talking about going to bed and he's talking about, you know, things that don't make sense. And uh, I just don't see him going to be, being able to go an hour and a half, 90 minutes against Donald Trump three times in a row. Uh, I just don't see that. And you can't blame COVID now and say that, oh, well, it's COVID. We don't have. To I mean, it's going to be interesting because if it is Trump Biden, which I, I can pretty much say with a 99.9 percent certainty, I don't think it's wise for Joe Biden to debate him. I mean, I just don't. I mean, I think that's going to only hurt Joe Biden. So we might not see a presidential debate with the top contenders this cycle. Now, before anybody, you know, begins to order flowers and a sympathy card, you know, it's probably fair to say that presidential debates are, are largely a 
post-advent of television phenomenon. I mean, you, you go back into the 1930s and 40s, um, even into the early 50s, and I I don't know, was it, was it the Kennedy-Nixon debate yep. in 1960 yep. that was the first actual debate? Yep, that's the one where if you watched it on television, Kennedy won. If you listened to it on the radio, Nixon won. There you have it. So it's, large, it's largely a, a, an invention of television, and I don't know that it's necessarily a prerequisite for the health of our uh, democratic institutions to uh, to continue with it, especially not in what it's devolved into. And, and as you suggest, I think that largely, since this is a primary debate, this is not, you know, Republican versus Democrat. This is Republicans versus Versus Republicans, and you know, I suppose uh, you know if uh, Biden wanted a little entertainment, he could go after uh, Mr. Kennedy. But why bother? And I, last I heard, Mr. Kennedy was looking at entertaining maybe a run with the Independent Party, which tells yeah. me he's doing more to try to sell books and his anti-vax position mm-hmm. than, than genuinely thinking he's going to be the next Kennedy in the White House. That yeah, said, he, if it's simply you know trying to attract those within the party as to who they're going to vote for in the primary. I, I think that it's it's a foregone conclusion how all that's going to play out. So then it raises the question, why are we here and what are we doing? Well, and that's the thing. And, and, and you can already tell that this, this campaign has pivoted away from the primaries because one of the things that struck me as interesting was Trump's uh, position on the Florida uh, abortion bill. Um, yeah, I know he's gotten some heat from that. But if you are strictly coming at this from a political perspective, understanding that the the Supreme Court decision did ruffle some feathers and did kind of uh, take some thunder away from what could have been a Republican midterm success. Trump is trying to now gravitate and move towards the middle, which I, I find is actually quite interesting because, I mean, you, this is a Trump that's now trying to be a little politically savvy and deal with an issue that he knows is, could be a potential thorn. And I think if you look at the polling numbers that came out from, uh, what was it, the ABC uh, Washpo poll, um, he was up 10 points, which I still think it might still be a little bit of an outlier, but he's gaining ground on so many of those key voting segments, those soccer moms, the younger voters. And I think by him trying to pivot to be a little bit more of a mainstream candidate, it's signaling right now that I think everybody knows that this race, this is just going to be pomp and circumstance. Well, um, you know, it was, speaking of Richard Nixon, it was he that said yeah. to win, the, for, from a Republican perspective, to win the yeah. primary, you run to the right, to win the general, you run to the center. And so yeah. it, it probably is a, a sort of preemptive approach yeah. by uh, Donald Trump. I, 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 I will disagree with you, though, on one point, yeah. and that is that yeah. um, he has taken all of the credit for the Supreme Court appointments yeah. that reversed 49 and a half years of Roe v. Wade. I don't yeah. know how three years afterwards you're able to somehow disconnect yourself from that. And I think that he certainly did upset a lot of real serious long-term uh, committed folks to the pro-life movement when he suggested that if you, quote, get to the right number of weeks, you'll find your solution. I, I, I can't see either end of either party, either in the solidly pro-life camp or in the solidly pro-choice, do-what-you-want camp, uh, coming together and singing Kumbaya because they've just finally realized that it's just a question of the number of weeks. I mean, s- serious pro-life people are going to look at that and say, wait a minute, a life is a life. Why 
why are we getting into trying to debate over what, what, what is viability based on X number of weeks? I think that is a major misstep. And I, as much as I think Republicans would like to think that this is not going to have an influence on the mushy middle, I think it will. I think we saw that in the midterms, and I think you're going to see that again come next November, uh, that, that this is definitely going to play a role in at least the decision-making of some people who may not publicly voice uh, their support for abortion, but privately would probably take the, you know, I'm against it, but, you know, if somebody has to choose under certain circumstances, who am I to get between them, their God, and their doctor? Yeah, and I think that's and that's why I think it's interesting that he went there. Not necessarily the principle of it, which I think you're right. There's some there's some major major the, uh, theological and there's major major logical issues with that. But from the political perspective, it's going to be interesting to see because uh, I'm, I'm looking at it more of a theatrics. If you see people on the right criticizing him, uh, and, and you know, unfortunately, in our today's world, we don't really go into substance; we go into symbolism. I think those in that mushy middle might think, "Well, wait a second. If they're criticizing him, then we might need to to think about him again as not being that far right." Again, I, I think if we're coming from a principled standpoint, this is absolutely horrendous. But from a, what interests me is from the political standpoint that he's willing to do this so early in the race. And, and this was I don't think this was just a happenstance of him just saying something off the cuff. I do believe that this was kind of a strategic move uh, to basically signal, hey, I pretty much got everybody on the right locked up. And even if they get mad at me to go. So now let me try to go get those people that that cost me the the race uh, in 2020 because they thought I was so much of a hardliner on immigration, on abortion and all these things. Maybe I can win them back because Joe Biden's so bad. Again, it comes with a risk. You're right. The risk is you don't want to deflate your base so they sit home. Um, but this, this election, I think, is going to be unlike any election we've seen because we have a president who believes he should still be president versus a guy who I don't think ever wanted to be president but kind of sh- got shoved into the role. Uh, so we really have two presidents going at it, and, and this is going to be interesting to see from, from a historical standpoint. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Now, I, I want to put a pause in here because there's one interesting dynamic, and I do concur with you that I think, you know, uh, tomorrow night's going to be an exercise in entertainment for some, but at the end, I don't think it's going to have the power to change anybody's minds. And if we can kind of suggest that who will be the eventual nominee for both parties as a foregone conclusion, then I will pivot to an interesting question that we will ponder after the break, and that be exactly this. Um, then the mashup between DeSantis and Newsom. What is that? Is that a preview of 2028? We'll talk about that and more. Constitutional lawyer, educator, best-selling author Joe Murray with us today. His book, by the way, is bestseller called Take Back Education. You can get it at the usual suspects as well as via Amazon.com. We take a time out back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And we're back to the conversation. Joe Murray with us today, educator and, of course, a constitutional lawyer, author of the best-selling book, Take Back Education. Okay, Joe, time to mash it up real good here. So we've talked about the debates for tomorrow, and I think everybody, if we can show get a show of hands here, uh, would say it's a foregone conclusion that likely come November, unless something really untoward or unexpected occurs, that a year from this 
November, we will likely be deciding between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. That said, and if that be the case, then help me understand why the governor who claims he's not running for president, but sure seems like he is, has now decided that he'd really like to have a debate. And uh, apparently word is out that uh, Sean Hannity is going to be the moderator. Um, And it's going to be a debate between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and California Governor Gavin Newsom. What is that? Is that a preview of coming attractions for 2028? Or are they hoping maybe something really uh, salacious happens to one of the two candidates and they get a chance to get an actual shot at this? I think there's a couple things. I think for Newsom, that is exactly what's going on. I think in the back of his mind, he is still hoping that uh, Biden does not make it to the uh, to the nomination and something happens whether he bails out or or whatever and and he can now say that he is poised to go up against because he does have the Kamala issue that he has to try to overcome um you know I think the Democratic Party is not going to like the optics of a white male coming in from California to deny her the opportunity a black female to run for president so I think he has to do everything in his power to get out in the minds of voters and become liked by especially democratic voters and I think DeSantis is is struggling. Uh, nobody views him as serious anymore. He is being overtaken by by who were people who were once lightweight candidates, and he was the guy. Remember, we were having this conversation about six months ago. DeSantis was going to dethrone Trump. I mean, it was close. I mean, at, at once, some of the polls, especially some of the earlier polls, had DeSantis only within you know a, a six seven point range, and and now he's light years away. So he is he has seen one of the worst primary campaigns I think ever run uh, from the perspective of, of trying to challenge Trump and, and it actually gave Trump credence that DeSantis would have lost his race in Florida if it wasn't for Trump coming in to help him. Um, so I think DeSantis is desperately trying to prove that he's still the number two guy in the Republican Party and he's the best man to be the, uh, the, 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 the carry the mantle of uh, conservatism and I think he's going to hope to have a contrast with Newsom have that message get out there a lot easier than being on a stage with what five other people that are trying to say the same thing. So I think for DeSantis, it's it's once again his last ditch effort to prove that he is the guy. Where, where, in, where, in your opinion, Joe, was the was yeah. the misstep? And I know that's that's a difficult analysis. I mean, yeah. you got to figure. Well, the guy at least has enough friends, enough popularity that he was able yeah. to win the the Florida governorship, uh, support of Donald Trump, with notwithstanding one way or the other. Uh, and yet, I, I've I've watched him in interviews. I watched him in the first debate. Um, I've I've seen some of his give and take with reporters or even with the public. Um, um, and uh, at least of late, and I can't tell you that I followed his career since day one because I haven't. But of late, he just seems to come across as being a bit of a political neophyte. You would think for a guy that's been around politics as long as he has that he would be a little bit more savvy, a little smoother. I mean, even if you don't like what Donald Trump stands for or the policies or what he represents or even a lot of what he says, says at least you have to admit, hey, the guy knows how to handle a conversation. He can come across as as disarming and charming, and and you know he can be equally as fun as he can be offensive. But at least he's got that political swagger about him, and that for me seems to largely be missing with Ron DeSantis. Or is my take on this completely off base? No, you're right, and I think 
I think what happened was there was a lot of people in DeSantis' ear saying that Trump was vulnerable, that Trump's people, uh, the, the MAGA crowd, was just looking for another person to go to, uh, and that if, if he would come out and be forceful, that the MAGA folks would just kind of abandon Trump and run to him, and I think that was a gross miscalculation. Uh, I think that those people who wanted to see Donald Trump fail so desperately were seeing things that were not there. Uh, they thought that once Trump got indictment, indicted, it would be all over, uh, that nobody would support him. But they misread the room because I'm not saying Trump is guilty or innocent. What I'm saying is after four years of everything being thrown at Trump, whether it was valid or not, and a lot of the stuff being seen to be shady being thrown at him, if they do have something on him now, nobody believes it. It's like the boy who cries wolf, right? So I think the Republicans that didn't want Trump were hoping that these indictments would be the thing that would shake the the MAGA folks loose from Trump, not realizing it was going to be the glue that held them together. And the other thing, too, is that I, I can't imagine. I mean, let, let's let's spin worst case scenario that yeah. the indictments turn into convictions and so forth. Yeah. I just can't see people later on down the road from from the, the solid Republican support, the solid base yeah. suddenly pivoting and saying, yeah, well, I don't like what my guy did, so I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. I mean, I, I just, yeah. you know, yeah, they're talking about the mushy middle, talking about the part timers, talking about about the independents, talking about the undecideds, yes, I can easily see uh, a sway taking place there. And you have to be mindful that neither one of these parties can win the presidency at any time in our history if it weren't for the independents and the mushy middle. Mm -hmm. That said, I just can't see a lot of people suddenly deciding that Joe Biden is their guy because they don't like, uh, you know, uh, decisions handed down by juries or judges. Yeah, and what what is the mushy middle really thinking about right now? They're thinking about how much it is at the grocery store. They're you thinking bet. about how much it is at the gas pump. They're thinking about what our image is on the global stage. Uh, they're thinking about how we went from energy uh, independent to energy dependent. So I, I really do think, and we can go back to the election of 1992 with Monica Lewinsky, uh, with Bill Clinton and uh, Paula Jones and all that, we we divorced ethics and morality from our presidential discourse. That was something that was done back in the in the 90s. So now we're not voting on the guy that we think is the most moral and ethical. We are now voting on the guy who we think can get something done. Trump proved that he could get something done with the economy, and I think that's going to save him with the mushy middle. And I think what's going to happen on the on his hardliners. Look, I mean, like I said, nobody is going to believe anything that happens now with Trump because everybody's going to think it's been thrown at him. I've actually talked to people who are not Trump fans who are who are who are tired of the double standard. And that alone is giving them pause, saying, well, look, you know, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden getting away with bloody murder. But yet Trump is getting thrown into the crosshairs. So that whole double standard comes to play. The idea of where we were going, you know, ironically, back to the 60s and the 70s when Watergate happened and it was a huge scandal. Craig, I think if Watergate happened today, it wouldn't be a big deal. I I think that's where we are in our country. I don't know if that's good or bad. But these scandals are not holding the potency that they had anymore. All right, let me ask you this out out of abject curiosity in in light of just what what you've said. Two quick questions. Question number one, and that is that in the wake of everything that's come forward regarding Mr. Mendez um, and and to find out that, oh, yeah, Yeah. he's he's trading government secrets with the Egyptians, et cetera, et cetera. And he just casually keeps a million dollars in cash around the house, you know, in case of emergency or he might have to pay the paper boy. (laughs) Is 
what may wind up being a uh, a conviction here going to bring any sense of, oh, okay, it looks like they're going after both sides? Do you think that'll happen at all? It may or may not. You know, being a New Jersey native, uh, Bob Menendez has been on the radar for quite some time, and everybody kind of knew of those shady dealings, although I can sympathize. You know, I wouldn't mind having gold bars in the house. Me either. <laughs> That's completely normal. Uh, but, I mean, it is going to be interesting from that standpoint. Here, here's where I think it it kind of falters. I don't think that is going to get as much as attention as we think it is, because I think uh, the one thing we learned about Donald Trump back in 2016 is he does not have to pay a stitch of money for publicity. He just is a, a publicity vacuum. He, 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 he sucks it up completely, which is why if we are having trials right before these primary and caucus days, that actually will probably help him because all the news coverage is going to be on his trial. And all these primary guys, all these candidates, these second-tier candidates that are hoping for a miracle in Iowa and New Hampshire are not going to get the coverage that they need. Yeah, last I heard, the uh, the opening of the, of the trial for one of them, I forget which one, it, you almost need a scorecard to keep track, but one of them apparently is the Monday before Super Tuesday, so that'll be interesting. Okay, my other question, and then i got to take a quick time out here. Uh, in light of your observation, and I believe it an accurate one, that America has, uh, over time, uh, post-Watergate, pivoted away from and certainly... Uh, you know, demonstrative after Bill Clinton uh, from concern over moral issues. If that be the case, does that mean Gary Hart gets a redo? <laughs> he, was, he was the one that came right to my mind. He's the same one. <laughs> just you know, just 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 for giggles and grins. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Well, you know, Lord have mercy. Yeah, well, you know, Jack Kennedy's probably thinking, well, dadgummit, I, I was just about a 60 years too early. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to pause on that thought before we get ourselves deep in trouble here. Uh, we're visiting today with constitutional lawyer, best-selling author and educator Joe Murray. We're taking some of the big headlines of the week and their impact on your life. We're going to come back with more on the very same topic, including, did you ever imagine a time in America when we'd be talking about Banning books? That is Lifeline Continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Educator, attorney, and best-selling author Joe Murray with us today. An analysis of the headline news items of the week and their impact on your life. Now, Joe, I want to tread carefully on this next little item here. And I'll begin with kind of the the, the upfront uh, the disclaimer, so to speak, that as a longtime student of history, particularly 20th century history and World War II, um, Anytime a phrase like censorship or book banning is uttered, I, I immediately bristle because I know what it represented during periods of uh, 20th century history, and it's a very frightening picture. Uh, that said, I just have to wonder, I mean, how do we get to the point in America where we're having discussions about banning books in schools and, you know, I, I hear things like this and I think to myself, well, there, there are materials that need to be age appropriate. And clearly some of this falls outside of that category. Uh, the, the other thing that I find uh, slightly as amusing as it is uh, horrifically heartbreaking, and that is, does anybody really believe that any child is actually going into a physical library today <laughs> and picking up a book? I mean, uh, heaven forbid, I would that that would be the case. Um but I just don't think that's happening very often. 
What's a book? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> said, said the writer of a bestseller. Thank you very much. <laughs> if you talk think about iPhone burning, that's a whole different story. Different right? story, indeed. But, um, you know, look, I am with you on this. I am a First Amendment absolutist. I, I, I like to err on the side of speech. Uh, you know, I, I believe that it should be up to the marketplace of ideas to clean up what's good and bad. But I will say I do hold a, a an exception for when it comes to schools because I, I don't like the characterization of when we limit books in schools as book banning because we have to remember that we're not banning the books. We're just saying that we're not going to use taxpayer dollars to put them in a taxpayer-funded building for students to read who are not the who are not the children of the people overseeing the books. And I think that's a big distinction. I mean, you know, you can talk about in loco parentis, but I mean, that it's about to keep the kids safe get, and let them learn. I think parents do have a right to come in. And I think this should be a community by community decision to say, what do we want our children to read? And if they don't want certain things to be read in the community, those things should be in the library. Now, what's the alternative? If you are a parent who believes that your child should have access to that, you go out and get the book. Uh, I do think it is it is acceptable for parents to have that involvement in the schools to to try to monitor what their kids are learning because we we have to forget educators tend to forget they're not our kids uh, you know we have the luxury of being able to teach other people's children and with that luxury and responsibility comes a, a great privilege and a, and a great burden to make sure that we are doing what's best for the child and, and and also honoring the wishes of the parent and i think that is a balance and if the parents decide that certain books are are inappropriate then but that means they just go from the school library. They're not gone forever. You can go out and get them other places. And like we just said, Lord knows you can hop online and probably access access it instantaneously. Yeah, well, that, that's why I look at part of this and think to myself, you know, we, we need to be sensitive to age appropriateness, content appropriateness, particularly around minors. That said, I'm not convinced that they're necessarily spending copious amounts of time in the, in yeah. the school library. And moreover, uh, you know, we're concerned about banning a book at the local Local library, and yet there are millions of pages on the internet that nobody says a word about. I, I, I guess part of the question here is: Does this become sort of a, a Solomon moment where you have to decide, you know, who's going to split the baby in half? Because we've heard cases where some folks go in and they object to certain titles, and the school librarian or the um, the um, the school board bans the book, and then somebody comes right behind them and says, "Well, look at all of the." violence that I found inside of this copy of the King James Version of the Bible. This is yeah. content that is under the guidelines established by the district. This is not allowable content either, so out with that as well. And all of a sudden, we're just playing semantical games. And that's the thing. We get we get put in a hamster wheel where we just go round and round and round, and we accomplish nothing. We go nowhere. And, and I think... That this this whole book debate that we're seeing here is just an offshoot of the fact that we no longer agree what's right and wrong. We no longer agree what's moral and immoral. We are not a united people. We're not as what John Jay said in Federalist Number 2. We are not a people that were meant for each other anymore. We have very divergent views when it comes to morality. And some parts of the country think that it's okay to give sexually explicit books to kindergartners and, and, and teach them about these theories where other parts do not. And the thing is, these ideas can't reconcile, and that's the problem that we have. 
you know, 50 years ago, we'd have no problem saying what is right and what is wrong. And even with the pornography case, and I forget the judge, I think, you know, memory is the second thing to go. Can't remember the first right now. But, but the judge basically said when it came to pornography, he knows it when he sees it. Yep. Um, we don't have that sense of moral clarity anymore. And this is this is what we get when we have that when we have that lack of unity when it comes to what is right and wrong when it comes to morality and faith. We have a society that is going to constantly be at war with each other because you have a side that believes that there is no morality and you have a side that believes that there is. And then they're going to be battling over who has what place because we know while there is violence in the King, King James Version of the Bible, that violence has context and, and there's and there's a higher meaning behind that. Uh, not necessarily when you're talking about you know, sexual activities between students in a book that that's geared to a specific student and potentially to indoctrinate a specific student. So our, our type of student this is the issue that we have here. And I don't know the fix to that, Greg, because we, we you, this is not something that can be compromised. There's no middle ground here when it comes to morality or amorality. And, and this is, I think we're just going to see more of it as we, as we continue on this path that we're on until we either A, return to a, a sense of moral clarity and understanding, or B, we, we resign ourselves to living in a, a morally relativistic society in which there is no right and wrong. And either way, I don't see hap- anything happening anytime soon. No, I don't either. And, and you're very astute, I think, in pointing out that this is the consequences of uh, immorality, amorality, uh, the, the road that we've been headed down for, my goodness, that we made a reference to Jack Kennedy earlier. I, I've always kind of seen, uh, I mean, there's a lot of places where you can have a dividing line, but, but when it comes to public morality, I'm differentiating from civil rights and other issues of that sort. When we just talk about public morality, it seems as if Along about the time of the Kennedy assassination, there was a level of innocence in this nation that suddenly disappeared. Um, and I think arguably we've seen just this slowly, steady march into the abyss ever since. And when you have such differing viewpoints on such basic issues as to, you know, how should we raise our kids, what's appropriate in public and what isn't, you know, while it breaks my heart to think that there is a chasm in, in our in our nation, I think we also need to recognize it. Now, do I think that it elevates to the level as, uh, as um, Marjorie Taylor Greene suggests, that we ought to get out the guns and have another civil war. Well, I don't know that we're ready for that. And I don't know that that solves any problems, to be sure. But, you know, it, it, it points to, the, to the, the bigger, grander problem that, unfortunately, is a difficult one to talk about in the public square, and that is that America um, has a real moral dilemma on her hands. Yeah. And, and you know what? I'm not going to do a shameless plug, but I am. But I write about this in the book, and this starts with Antonio Gramsci. He was a Italian uh, communist who kind of got run out of Italy during the Mussolini years, and he, he fled to Soviet Russia, where he saw that the people were obedient. But he, he recognized one thing, that while the people were obedient to communism, they were not buying into it. They didn't like it. They were just doing it because they didn't want to end up in the gulags, right, and, and dead. So he, he recognized that the one thing that was preventing the Soviet, the Russian people, from embracing communism was Christianity. And it was this part when then, you know, the Frankfurt School comes along. The plan for the left was the long march through the institutions to de-Christianize the West. Because if you succeed in de-Christianizing the West, then the, the shields are down 
and then this ideology that has has its roots in Marx can come marching in, and that's what they've done, Craig. You mentioned the 60s and Kennedy. That's exactly right, because that's when this start, stuff started taking hold. That's when we started losing the university. That's when we started losing the newspaper, the Hollywood. And you remember, there was the Hayes Commission. Oh, yes, you, very much so. Get that. Now there is none. All these things were removed. The church itself has been unmoored and, and, and has been and steeped in controversy on both Protestant and Catholic sides. And this was all part of the design. And this is the scary thing, Craig, is that this was all done in the open. There was no covert operations. This is what they were writing. This is what they said they were going to do. It's just that most people in the country never thought it would happen. No, and, and we were so busy looking for communists under the bed and, you know, exactly. worried about the, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, what do you call it, the Council on Foreign Affairs and, uh, yep. you know, uh, all, yep. all the Bilder, Bilderbergers and all of those, you know, yep. uh, cloak and dagger type organizations. And we, we were, you know, we just thought about all this stuff, you know, coming out of a, uh, a pulp fiction novel, not realizing that while we were busy, distracted yep. over here, it was actually happening right in front of our faces. We just did recognize it. Yeah, we were the slow boiling frog. We were, yep. we were sitting in lukewarm water, and that lukewarm water got hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter, and now we're feeling it. Yep, no doubt about it. Joe Morgan, Joe Morgan, where did I get Joe Morgan from? <laughs> Joe Murray with us today. I just saw J.P. Morgan. We're going to talk about that next. I've just conflagrated the two names. Anyway, this is actually Joe Murray with us. He's a constitutional lawyer by trade, an educator as well, and a best-selling author. We're going to come back more of our discussion. We'll talk about J.P. Morgan writing a pretty hefty check because of Jeffrey Epstein? That is Lifeline Continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back with Joe Murray, constitutional lawyer, author, and educator, talking about some of the big news stories. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one, Joe, but but it caught my attention. J.P. Morgan writing a check for $75 million on claims that it somehow enabled Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking operations. And uh, that is on the heels of a earlier lawsuit where they had agreed to pay $290 million in a class action suit that involved victims of Epstein's trafficking crimes. What am I missing here? How are they on the hook for his behavior? Is there something that they were aware of that they failed to report? Yeah, that is what was alleged in, in the lawsuits, uh, on both lawsuits. One, I think, from the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands, and I, f- I forget who brought the other one. I think it was the survivors uh, of his victims brought the other one. Um, there is documentation that their internal red flags were, 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 were basically waving in their faces, that there was something wrong with where the money was going and how it was being used, and that some suspicious activity was being flagged. And from what the allegations say, the, the bank ignored it because Epstein was such a valuable client. So if you or I transfer more than $10,000, yeah. they immediately report that to the feds. But if Epstein's yeah. doing, you know, a uh, hanky-panky here with millions of dollars and, 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 and most horrifically with underage children, everybody stays quiet because he's got a name and he's got money? Wow. And, yep, that's that's exactly the allegations that were, were levied against them. And, you know, and they also just got embarrassed, too, because they were accused of deleting some 47, I think, thousand or million, I can't remember, some obnoxious amount of that they just deleted. They were under uh, they were under a request from the SEC, and and they just were deleted. And they say, "Oops, you know, it was internal error, a server error, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like with Hillary with the sledgehammer to the phone." Funny Oops, how that happens. Huh? <laughs> I don't know how this happened, but yeah, J.P. Morgan is having some uh, 
some bad times right now. And uh, some would say they're getting what they deserve. Yeah. Wow. Shocking. Uh, final story tonight uh, under the uh, the category entitled, with the last one out, please turn out the lights. <laughs> it sounds as if now, you know, it, it may or may not happen. But, Joe, down through the years, we've also repeatedly had this conversation that we take it right up to the edge and whoever's the dominant party is asking for things and the other side doesn't want to give in and it all leads to a big budget showdown as if either side is really concerned about the deficit. And I'm just going to call it for what it is. Uh, This this game of ping pong has been going back and forth between the two sides, Republicans and Democrats, for decades now. And any premise that they are deeply concerned about the direction of America and our out-of-control federal deficit is just uh, pure theater because, quite frankly, both sides liberally add to that deficit down through the decades. Can you believe in Ronald Reagan's days we were upset because it was a $4 trillion deficit? Fast forward 43 years, and here we are now hugging the corner of $34 trillion. Yeah, I mean, here's the deal. I I remember when we first had, when the idea of a budget shut down, I think it was, what, in the 90s, sometime in the 90s, and everybody was about to to go absolutely insane, and and they they thought the whole world was going to end, and, and, and it's like, now, it's like, it's just normal course of business. Right. And, and and you're right. I mean, if the Republicans were threatening to shut down the government because they were going to demand real change that would put a dent in that that 34 trillion, I think most people get behind them. But you and I both know it's it's just basically to get little piddlings and in order to get stuff so they can go back to their constituents and claim, we fought for you. No, you didn't fight for us. You you used us. Now, what's unique about this, let me interrupt quickly because our time is winding down. What's unique about this, though, is the battle that's being, that's brewing right now between Matt Gates of Florida, not exactly one of the stellar, most brilliant lights of republicanism, and our own House Speaker. And, I mean, there are some in the press that are suggesting that um, that Speaker McCarthy is going to have to choose between his career, uh, getting a budget, or placating Matt Gates. Yeah, I mean, this is the whole, this to me is the, the story of this budget shutdown. It's not the Republicans versus the Democrats. It's Republicans versus Republicans. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to be the interesting tale. I think McCarthy has done a fair job. I'm not going to write home and think he was the best speaker. Uh, you know, I, I think there are many more that have done better than him. But given the very slim majority he has and, and what he has to work with, I, I have to give him some credit. But I hope this isn't going to be an example of some of the extreme players in the party seeking to do their own promotion, personal promotion at the extent at the expense of the party and of the country. Um, and I have a feeling that's where we're heading. Yeah, and it's, it's sad because be instead of fighting for what's right, we're just fighting each other. Well, and we're fighting for who can get the most airtime and, and who, who can do their own self-promotion. And that's where I think some conservatives get such a bad rap because we have too many that sometimes confuse principle with their personality and 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 they kind of get that image blurred and and i'm not saying it's happening but i'm saying i hope it doesn't well i I think it's happening and i can name individuals from states like oh let's see georgia colorado florida and uh, most notably new york city uh, a johnny come lately um that uh, all tend to, to to do just that they seem to be more concerned about attracting attention to themselves than the actual issues and and it's 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 sad. It really is. Well, Joe, as always, we appreciate the time and the insights. 
Yep. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you, my friend, as well. All right. There's Joe Murray, constitutional lawyer, educator, and author. His book, again, is called Take Back Education. It really offers some great insights on the overall topic of what's happening in education in America today. So check it out online, Amazon.com, all the usual suspects. Take Back Education by Joe Murray. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.